0: Move over, billionaires. We're doing science. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I'm not here to talk about buying a ticket to ride along with Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, But I would like to talk about how their new suborbital space vehicles may usher in a new era for space science. Alan Stern is a big believer in this opportunity. In fact, he looks forward to his own flight that will include two experiments. Have your days been dominated by the Olympics? Bruce Betts is right there alongside you, which explains today's Olympics-themed What's Up. A big thank you to everyone who had such nice things to say about last week's long and fascinating conversation with Andy Chaikin about Apollo and Artemis. So, guess what's on top of the July 30th edition of the Downlake? That's Apollo 15 Commander Dave Scott at the mm, joystick of the first lunar roving vehicle. You'll find it at planetary.org downlake along with these headlines. NASA has decided Europa Clipper will ride a SpaceX Falcon Heavy to Jupiter's moon. The decision came after Congress relaxed a requirement that the spacecraft travel on the giant Space Launch System rocket that is still headed toward its first launch. Astronomers think they found water vapor in the atmosphere of Europa's neighbor Ganymede, which makes the planned 2022 launch of the European Space Agency's JUICE mission even more exciting. JUICE will study all the Jovian moons. And you've probably heard about the harrowing moments that followed the docking of Russia's new Nauka module with the International Space Station. Initial reports said uncontrolled firing of the module's thrusters may have knocked the entire ISS out of alignment by 45 degrees. That's bad enough, but recent reports indicate it may have been much worse. We're waiting for details. We'll go to Alan Stern in a minute, but I first want to pay tribute to another of the great explorers I've met while hosting this show. It was back in the late winter of 2014 that I accompanied a big group of Planetary Society members to Fairbanks, Alaska. I based two episodes on that trip. Neil Brown was featured in both. I got word from his family that Neil passed away a few days ago. The former director of the Poker Flat Research Range was retired by the time I met him, but he had lost none of his enthusiasm for science and rockets. Understanding the Aurora Borealis became his passion, and it was a passion he was delighted to share with others. He lived a magnificent life. You can read about it and connect with those two shows from this week's episode page, found at planetary.org radio. You probably know Alan Stern best as the principal investigator for the ongoing New Horizons mission, but that's just the beginning. It's why I call Alan the busiest person in space. Of course, he's never actually been there. Not yet, anyway. That may change in a matter of months when Alan climbs aboard Virgin Galactic spaceship to Unity. As you're about to hear, it will be much more than a joyride. Alan is likely to become the first scientist to conduct hands-on research during a suborbital flight. He is convinced he'll be followed by many, many others in what he believes is the opening of a new era. Alan talked with me a few days ago from the Southwest Research Institute, where he is Associate Vice President of the Space Science and Engineering Division. Alan, welcome back to the show. It's uh, been a little while. Uh, You've still been on more than just about anybody who has ever been my guest on Planetary Radio, but that's because you always have great new stuff to talk about. Welcome back.
1: Oh, thank you, man. It's great to be back. It's one of my favorite things to do is to come on on Planetary Radio.
0: That means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Alan. Were you uh, jumping up and down for joy over the past uh, couple of weeks when first we saw Virgin Galactic fly that Unity 22 flight in Spaceship Two and then Blue Origin go above the Karman line?
1: It was spectacular, both of them. Uh, Home run hits, and uh, you're absolutely right. I was jumping for joy. I wasn't jumping as high as they fly, but I was (laughs) jumping pretty high.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have more reason than most of us uh, to be happy about this stuff, because I know that you are planning to do a lot of science up there. In fact, I got a nice surprise when I was doing my research for this conversation. I went on the Virgin Galactic site after uh, Googling Virgin Galactic science or payload, I forget which, And uh, what do I see first? A two-minute video by Alan Stern saying this is where Star Trek begins. What did you mean?
1: Well, I think the whole era that we're living in, Matt, is uh, where Star Trek begins. This is really the inflection point with um, spaceflight uh, breaking out. The power of commercial spaceflight, and I don't just mean suborbital, but the things that are going on in orbit with human space tourists, with human research applications, with satellite constellations, with uh, robotic commercial taking us uh, to the moon and the planets, and many other things, really is, I think, the secret sauce for the beginning of human expansion into space. Before, we were always limited to only doing what the government could afford to do. And now we have this proliferation of innovation and new applications coming about, through commercial space flight, of which suborbital is one and one important one, but only one. And I think in two centuries' time, in that Star Trek era, people will look back on our time in the early 21st century and say, this is where Star Trek began.
0: Doing science on suborbital flights is nothing new.
1: No, in fact, the, uh, the earliest research done in space was done with uh, captured German suborbital V2s. In the 1940s, when the United States formed a science committee to look at how those vehicles could be pressed into uh, scientific research. And I got my start in the space industry in the early 1980s, long before I got my Ph.D., working on suborbital sounding rockets to study the aurora, to study comets and uh, other astrophysical phenomena on these suborbital flights. And I can remember even back then thinking What if you could put people on these vehicles? How much better would that would be in terms of your ability to conduct research where the experimenter can be with the experiment? I don't think I ever imagined that it would be uh, what we have today. But now we have this capability, and I think it's going to be transformational for space research.
0: So what you're talking about there is what I see referred to both from Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin as human-tended experiments. What makes the difference? What, why is it going to be useful to have a human flying along with these racks of equipment?
1: Well, you're asking me a question that I I love to have asked. You know, <laughs> space research has been a, a very unusual and disadvantaged kind of research compared to all of the research disciplines ever since it started. Because back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and even since, it, it was too expensive we didn't have the, the ability to throw the weight or to spend the money to send the researcher with the experiment. And so, all of us who do space research, with the rare exception of a few astronauts, have had to automate our experiments, whether they're on faraway robotic missions to the planets or whether they're just in Earth orbit. And automation is A, expensive, and B, it's failure prone. It's not great. Um, you don't see oceanographers automating all the ships, they sail on their (laughs) ships and do their research. You don't see every university lab being automated. No, because it's expensive and it's failure prone. Only in space research have we been stuck in this little cul-de-sac where the researcher couldn't fly with the experiment and do research the same way that researchers do their work in every other discipline. And now we finally have the chance to fly researchers at costs, that actually makes sense, that are less expensive than those sounding rockets. So it's a benefit, whether it's government or commercial research, the sounding rockets now look like the old stodgy expensive way. <laughs> and we now have these commercial vehicles that let individuals like myself fly and do the experiment uh, themselves at higher reliability and lower cost. What's wrong with that? It's like everything. <laughs> everything seems like, uh, you know, every part of this story is right side up.
0: So when do you get to go? I saw the announcement from a few months back uh, from uh, where, that place where you're a VP, the Southwest Research Institute, that uh, you are going to be accompanying some of this work on, well, in this case, I think it was uh, Virgin Galactic, but uh, are you also looking at flying on Blue Origins' uh, ship?
1: Well, Matt, we're hoping to fly uh, at the Southwest Research Institute on all the available vehicles that are safe. Hmm. Uh, We have a tremendous number of uh, applications that we see for this kind of stuff. I was very fortunate when I proposed to NASA last year to fly with a couple of experiments that we developed at Southwest uh, on uh, Virgin Galactic that they accepted our proposal on the first try. Uh, Virgin hasn't given us a, a flight date because they're still in their test program. I believe they have two more test flights after the Branson flight, but I'm hopeful that it'll be next year. For the first of our flights, and then every year after that, for the foreseeable future as we do more and more.
0: That is particularly exciting and makes me particularly envious. So, what are you going to do up there with three or four minutes of microgravity, which we, you know, we should point out that's uh, many times what you can get on the at least in any one parabola on, uh, on a vomit
1: comet? Right. On an airplane, uh, you get 20 seconds at a time, sometimes 30. Uh, and there are lots of microgravity applications, but that's not what, what we propose to do. We propose to do two things. Uh, I'll tell you about both of them. One is that I'm going to be wearing a uh, biomedical harness, hmm. uh, the same kind of harness that space shuttle astronauts wore. It measures respiration uh, rate and, and your blood pressure and your pulse as a function of time to develop an understanding of not what a tourist or a pilot might experience, but what a researcher experiences on their first space flight. So we'll put that on before I put on the flight suit, turn it on. It runs for many hours on batteries, and I'll just wear it. I don't have to do anything. It's passive, and it'll be taking those vital signs all through the preparations, through the launch, the space flight portion, the entry, the landing, all of that. And we hope that it's the first of what will become hundreds of of datasets on researchers flying in space, and we're interested in all kinds of questions—not just what does it look like as a profile as you go through the the high Gs of launch and entry and the microgravity uh, around apogee, but how does a, an individual researcher's uh, vital signs change as they become more familiar with spaceflight? Would it be different on my fifth flight than on my first flight, for example? And how to Different researchers respond, people of different ages, different medical histories, different genders, uh, different experience levels, so that we can help future researchers know what to expect. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded as an old story, when the first space shuttle took off, there were two two people on board, the pilot and the commander. The commander was John Young, and his heart rate was measured at about 80 beats per minute, <laughs> pretty much normal. but The pilot was up at 140. He was a rookie. Uh, a guy named Bob Crippen. And in the press conference after the flight, they asked Young, how come your, your heart rate was so low? He said, well, I'm getting older. I just don't think it goes any faster than that anymore. <laughs> 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 um, but the other thing that I'll be doing on this flight uh, is probably even more important. We want to understand how well these vehicles can do other kinds of research, in our case, astronomy. Hmm. We've had astronomical sounding rockets suborbital missions, for 70 years literally 70 years since the 1950s uh, virgin galactic and blue origin vehicles are going to fly much more often than sounding rockets ever did so we have the chance to do astronomy much more often and at lower price points but first we have to know how well does the vehicle do how well can it point and how transparent are the windows you can do some of that on the ground looking through the windows but you know in flight There are differences. There's the big old Earth out there reflecting light into the window. There's glints off the wings of the Virgin Galactic vehicle. There are probably exhaust films that get on the windows from the rocket-powered flight. And you can't simulate all that on the ground. So I'm taking a payload uh, called SWISS, the Southwest Ultraviolet Imaging System, that we designed for the space shuttle and flew several times. I was principal investigator. We're taking it on Virgin Galactic to look through their windows at the same star fields and astronomical objects that we looked at on the space shuttle years ago.
0: Alan, I'm going to remind uh, listeners that uh, Bob Crippen was my guest a couple of months ago and told some great stories about that oh, first uh, great. shuttle flight and uh, and his partner up there, John Young. Are you familiar with uh, the experiment that was riding along with Richard Branson on that uh, Unity 22 flight from Virgin Galactic. Uh, It's from these two researchers at the University of Florida, Gainesville. uh, Robert, I I don't know if I'll get the name right, maybe you know it, Robert Farrell or Ferrell and Annalisa Paul. Apparently, they've been sending plants up uh, since the 1990s on shuttle missions. But they made this very interesting point that um, nobody has really had the opportunity to study what happens, at least to plants, during the transition from 1G to 0G and then back again, all the other work has happened while you're already up on orbit. And apparently they're already seeing some interesting things. Seems like a really good example of what these flights may be able to tell us.
1: No, I think you're right. Uh, I know Annalisa and Bob very well. They both served on a committee that I chaired for the Commercial Space Flight Federation 10 huh. years ago mm-hmm. called the Suborbital Applications Researchers Group, or Sarge in which we had biologists, astronomers, microgravity scientists, Earth scientists, others, looking at, and, and in a sense, brainstorming the range of applications that these suborbital commercial vehicles can give us. This transition to microgravity is one of those areas where uh, it's, it's almost, uh, not to make a pun about Virgin Galactic, but it's virgin territory. <laughs> on On space shuttle and ISS missions, the astronauts... Are busy getting the cockpit squared away the first few minutes they're not doing research and so we miss that opportunity to study the immediate transition to microgravity you can expect to fly five or ten suborbital commercial missions for about the cost of one nasa sounding rocket wow which is a tremendous boost and because they fly frequently you could fly have researchers flying ten missions in a year think of the speed of the research how much more quickly it progresses when you can do five or ten things for the price of one and get them all done, not in a decade, but in a single year.
0: I read, I, I couldn't find much about pricing for Virgin Galactic, but I saw someplace, not on the Blue Origin site, that um, you know a high school, and there are some high schools that are working on projects like this, can send a payload up on New Shepard for as little as $8,000. That both of these companies, they've designed rack-mount systems and power provision and ways to record your data. It's, it's all there. You just have to meet their, their interface, I, I suppose, is the right way to put it.
1: That's exactly right. And so we can start seeing kids doing science fair projects in space. I think we'll start to see, for that matter, uh, college students and, and uh, postdocs starting to fly in space in this decade. Uh, I mean, uh, Blue Origin just flew an 18 year old individual. But, you know, that was for a tourist experience. There's no reason that if we can send college students and graduate students down to the South Pole or to the edge of a volcano or down in a submersible under the ocean, that they shouldn't also be able to fly in space. It's the 21st century. It's time.
0: Not just STEM, but maybe even Steam. Add that A for the Arts, uh, because I noted that there have been some art projects. Some artists have sent some work up uh, on at least New Shepard, if not uh, Virgin Galactic.
1: I'm with you, and I, I'm kicking myself that I left the A out of Steam when I said STEM, <laughs> because whether they're musicians or painters or they're making jewelry or you know any kind of art, it's the human experience and Humans are destined to, to go to space the same way that we were destined to leave our cradle in Africa. I think this is the breakout era now, both uh, suborbitally and then soon orbitally, where here in the early 21st century, spaceflight won't be limited to the few government employees that are professional astronauts, but to a much broader spectrum of people for many different purposes. And I think it's going to be transformational.
0: Alan, I definitely see now why you said this is where Star Trek begins. Best of success with all of this that you have going on. I can't wait to uh, greet you after your first flight. It'll be a tiny fraction of one AU, but it'll (laughs) still be a a giant leap, I think, in terms of uh, doing uh, inexpensive science, space science Uh, that uh, first flight that you uh, hopefully will be making before long on Virgin Galactic. Uh, Alan, again, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Matt, and thanks for all you do for, uh, for science and exploration with Planetary Radio.
0: Alan Stern is the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission that is now well past Pluto and the Kuiper Belt object called Arakoth. Alan provides a great update on his mission in the deluxe version of this week's show. You'll find it at planetary.org radio. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts. This is Planetary Radio.
2: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter. YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial
0: Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink
1: every Friday at planetary.org.
0: It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Just like it is every week, we are joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Bats is here. Hey, welcome. Hey,
2: good to be here, Matt. How you doing? I'm pretty fun. I, I'm pretty fun? You are pretty <laughs> fun, Matt. You're very fun. You you underestimate
0: your fun. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Here's something fun from Gene Lewin in the state of Washington. It's not a poem. He sends his poems all the time. This is a photo, which we'll try and put on the show page of planetary.org slash radio. Uh, Gene, and I guess some other folks, significant other maybe, noticed this big disc, this big white disc hanging in the sky, and it was kind of creepy. So he did what every good ufologist does. He went and got his telescope. <laughs> and he was actually able to see that it was a weather balloon. And uh, he took a great uh, picture just, you know, holding the camera up to the eyepiece. It's very instructive. I think it was uh, a good timing for this piece.
2: Yeah, it's very cool. He turned a UFO into an IFO. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I get it, because I'm fun. What's up other than weather balloons? <laughs>
2: that's pretty much it that's all i was going to point to this week no (laughs) no we've got uh, venus still low in the west in the early evening looking super bright we got jupiter and saturn rising in the east in the early evening and uh, shining all through the night with jupiter being the much brighter of the two and the perseid meteor shower traditionally the second best of the year in terms of number of meteors from a dark site. We'll be peaking the night of the 12th, 13th of August, and you'll have increased activity for several days before and after. Uh, And the moon will set by midnight or so, and you generally get more meteors after midnight anyway, so if you can party after midnight, you'll probably see more. We go on to This Week in Space History, it's the 60th anniversary of Vostok 2 where German Titov became the second human in space and the first to sleep in space and the first to vomit in space. Congratulations. <laughs> first, but definitely not the last to, uh, to lose
0: his lunch or lose his space food sticks or whatever the Soviets were eating
2: at that time. I believe the technical term was space goo. <laughs> Still is too often. Anywho, tenth anniversary of the launch of Juno that is partying at Jupiter, and the ninth anniversary of the landing of Curiosity on Mars, and it's still being curious. Nine wow. years in wow. addition. Just amazing. We move on to random a random space fact. Ran, 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 ran. I'm Olympics obsessed, Matt. I, every two years, I lose two weeks of my life to the Olympics. So we're doing Olympic themes right now. I'm also obsessed with LightSail 2, of course. So at launch, the LightSail 2 spacecraft had the width of a balance beam and the length of a rugby ball. And the deployed sail is the size of a boxing ring. I love it. Don't worry. There'll be more. We move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you to name all who have flown longer than one year, in this case, 365 days or more in space on single missions. And I got myself confused because there's the people who flew 365 days and 22 hours or such. I was trying to exclude them, but we're including them. So I'll take, I'll take whatever, as long as you got the right answers. Tell us how they, they, the listeners did with this. I'm just so flustered at, it phrasing this poorly go ahead you're Matt. frustrated
0: with yourself i understand i understand you're 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 tough on yourself you thought that you had this pinned down well that's okay because our winner who will learn the identity of in a moment had all four of the people who've been there f- at least 365 days plus a few maybe hours i'll give you the answer first from our poet laureate dave fairchild in kansas there are four that went to space and spent a year or more there. Polyakov is first in line, 438 in midair. Sergei A. is next to go, 380 workdays, while Monorov and Titoff spent a year and almost one day. And then it was Edwin King in the UK who said his Bruce Bean, Trixie, Vladimir Titoff and Musa Monorov only spent 365 days in space on Mir, 1987-88. But the flight duration was 365 days, 22 hours, 38 minutes. So that counts, surely.
2: That's it. I was being tricksy. (laughs) I tricked myself. Yes, that definitely counts. Those are uh, the four we will take. Polyakov with his 437.7 days in space. Avdeev, 379.6. And Vladimir Titov and Musa Manarov at 365 days plus a little bit. Well played, sir. Well, then here is our
0: winner, who I thought had won before, but I, I guess it's just because we've corresponded a little bit over the two years that I have record of that uh, that he's been entering. But this is a first-time win, apparently, for Joseph Poutre in uh, New Jersey. New Jersey you had all four of those names, uh, starting with those first two, uh, who were well past 365. Congratulations, Joseph. We're going to send you a uh, Planetary Radio t-shirt from chopshopstore.com, which is where you'll find all of the Planetary Society's merch, all kinds of cool stuff there,
2: chopshopstore.com. We're ready to go on to a, a new one. Back to the Olympics. Name all the Olympics for which an Olympic torch was flown in space. Go to planetary.org radiocontest. You mean there was at least one? I mean, I had no idea that there was an Olympic torch
0: flown in space. Uh, with the thought that fire acts kind of weird in microgravity and probably isn't a well, whatever, we'll find out in
2: two weeks. Just, okay. just to be clear, flame is not required. A torch is required. Olympic torch is required. Uh. <laughs>
0: Uh, Max. Max likes this one. Uh, You have until the 18th. That'd be August 18 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, answer this one and win yourself. Here's something we haven't offered in a while. How about one of those very cool kick asteroid planetary society (laughs) asteroids? (laughs) It can be yours. Uh, Just enter the contest and you might get picked by random.org.
2: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what Olympic events should Planetary Radio be part of. Thank you. Good night.
0: Oh, man, what would be... Is there an event for uh, rover rolling, having rovers roll over you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but there should be. I think it'll be an exhibition event in uh, Paris uh, in three years. Really long-time listeners to Planetary
0: Radio get it. Uh, They get it because it came from Bruce Betts, the... uh, Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, who has been with us for, well, it'll be 19 years soon, every week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its high-flying members, Mark Verde and Jason Davis. Our associate producers, Josh Doyle, composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. at Astra.